Welcome to EQ&A. EQ&A is a premier podcast of interviews and panels with music and entertainment industry professionals. These are done in a weekly forum at Loyola University, New Orleans, and today's episode is an interview of musician Hal Gelb. In this interview, Hal Gelb will riff on his long career as an artist and how to make a living without necessarily making it big in the music world. And so now we'll jump over to the interview between Billy O'Connell and Hal Gelb. So, um, you know, you've been making music officially, right? We were just talking about this since 1975. Yeah. What happened? What happened in 75? 75 was uh, NPR, local NPR station offered up free uh, recording for two, three hours. And you had to come up with 20 minutes worth of music. Uh, this was in Pennsylvania. So that's, I took advantage of that and knew nothing about it. In fact, I thought that, I thought that the band would know the material when I got there. I was convinced that if I wrote the song in my room, when I got there to play it, the guys I got would just know how to play along. <laughs> so were you six? I still. How old were you when that happened? <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, tw- uh, Around 20, right. around 20. Right. So there's a steep learning curve at that point. <clears throat> yeah, it didn't work out so well. Right. Um, but, uh, but in 72, a few years before that, you know, there was a big flood in Pennsylvania and wiped out our house. And same year, my dad remarried in Arizona. So I was splitting my time until finally in 76, I moved to Tucson permanent. And there... Uh, there was no information. We had no college radio playing anything new. So it was tough to get any uh, information, any any new music. Uh, if you went down, there was one punk rock record store, and they'd only have one or two copies of what you wanted. So when you couldn't get that, basically what happened was uh, it was very cheap to live there, and uh, you'd exist on a pot of beans for the week. And, and then we would make our own music because we couldn't buy any. Like we being get a pioneer. To it. Yeah, making your own clothes. Making your own clothes. Sonic and Thread. The Sonic Thread. Sonic Thread. Any yeah. of you can have that band name, yeah. by the way. <laughs> That's right. And I'm not a singer-songwriter. Yeah, I, was, I know, I said that right? because I used the words. What, so here's the thing. There's, a, there's a, like a, a superimposed thing that comes up that says Hal Gelb on it. And the guys asked us before before forum, what is, we need a title. What do we want? What do we do as title? What's the problem? The problem is that it doesn't. There's no correct term for what it is. A, a group of us do. Ever since uh, I think ever since Dylan started writing his own material and sang his own material, didn't wait for a proper singer to come along because there's no time. The material there was too much material piling up. You got to deliver the material. But you're not really a singer. He's not really a singer. Right. But he's a songwriter. And if nobody's taking your songs and playing them, then that's not even, I mean, not really a songwriter. Nobody's singing your songs. Really? Yeah. All right. So there's a group of people that aren't good enough to be musicians that could play anybody else's music. And that was, that was my problem. So you'd have to make up something in order to play it. Right. Which, is, which sounds an awful lot like what people say about punk rock. Yeah, well, when that came around, finally, it was a great relief. 
Yeah. <laughs> it was all attitude instead of technical yeah. ability. So, so you, um, you moved to New York from Pennsylvania, right? Is that what you did? No. I went oh, wait, to you Tucson. went to Tucson. Yeah. And you started, so what, that's, what band did you form in Tucson? Uh, end of the 70s, uh, there's a band called Giant Sandworms with this, uh, my best friend out there, who I didn't realize was born in East Berlin. He was a dobro player, slide player, grew up in Chicago. And um, he had no accent, no East German accent. Right. I didn't realize his background. So we started this band called Giant Sandworms. And then in 1983, it got shortened to just Giant Sand. Uh, in 81, we went out to New York just to see. I thought that's where all the good music, all the good guitar music was coming from. Right. So the other band in town called The Surfers went out to Los Angeles because that's where they thought the good guitar music was. <laughs> they became green on red. Right. And we went to New York and we got there too late because bands like Television and Patti Smith Group and Talking Heads and Ramones, they were all gone. So it was all the big Sonera sound, the oh, drum yeah. machine and the Casio and Tainted Love was the order of the day by Soft Cell. So we had missed it. But we played CBGB's whole bunch and it was a very tough city to live in back then. It's not like Disneyland now. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. it's nice to be there now, but it, it was real rough back in 81. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And it made everywhere else... So that was 81, by the way. That's what we're talking about, 81? Yeah. So where, what was, the, what was the, the, where was the revenue for you? Like, where was the money? How did you make money uh, we, with well, music? I, then, back then, we still weren't making records, so I just got a, a job. A guy had connections in uh, Arizona. So t the two guys in the pen worked at McDonald's, and I got a job in this art gallery uptown, um, uh, repacking old Indian pots. Wow. to ship back and forth to Arizona. So that's how we existed there, but... We... So that's what you did to survive. And, yeah. and so, so this is kind of... I mean, this gets, this gets funny, because then you talk about the first time you got to put out a record. What, yeah. what brought you to that? Yeah, it, for me, I think it started late. So I didn't put out a record till I was 28, because we couldn't figure out how to get it done. When I went back to Tucson, there's just no information about it. <laughs> And then we found a studio in Los Angeles, so we recorded a record in a day, day and a half, and uh, for 400 bucks. And then I got drunk enough to give the tape of it to a passing band through town. And then that guy called me, the manager, a few months later said, a label in France is interested, and they'll give you a thousand bucks for a three-year license. And then it began making sense. Right. And so, but you always kept your masters, right? You, didn't, yeah, you well, didn't do deals, regular record deals. Yeah, because when he said license, that means you get the rights back in yeah. three years. Yeah. So then I did the next one like that, and the next one, the next one. And then, because I'm not under contract, I just kept doing them that way. Right. Which is unusual. You understand that. I mean, especially for a band that was started making records in what, 1981? Not 81, 85. It was 85, 84. Yeah. So like 84, 85, I mean, if you were signed, you were basically... Giving ownership of your masters, the the, the audio, you know, the sound recordings of your stuff were going to be owned by the label, but how happened into you know into a strange path in so that he ended up licensing his stuff and owning his own masters so that they revert and, and, and they remained his property or they or, or they 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 re, they rotated back to him and became his property again, yeah. which kind of served you in the long run pretty well. Well, but, you d I didn't know if it'd be good or bad, but it yeah it's. 
It's okay. And so, but so, so that's so making records is what started you not having to work wrapping Indian pots yeah. anymore. Yeah. Right. So what? How did that go? Well, what happened? So you, you you sold records and you got enough en enough in 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 mechanical and artist royalties. No. So what did you do? No. No. It would still had to be supplemented. Uh, I went back to Tucson for a while and then then moved out to L.A. Right. Uh, and delivered L.A. weeklies and pizza and, and, and all kind of little odd jobs. Right. But the more records we'd make, then the sooner we'd get the licensing money, and then we could do a tour. And that's, so is that is that the progression for you? You would yeah. get like a chunk of cash that would allow you to tour. Yeah, and they'd and, give us a buck for every previous amount sold. So when they sold three thousand records, we get three thousand bucks for the next record. Yeah, and we'd always record for half or less, right? So that was your your formula. Yeah. So building an audience for you was being on the road. Yeah, like not that much in terms of releasing records at that time. It just sounds familiar. It sounds like now. Yeah, it doesn't see that's which is what one of the points I wanted to make by having you here was the fact that the way you started out. And the way you were kind of a lifer to begin with, you weren't a hobbyist. You were like, you'd do anything to be able to keep making music, right? You were working, you know, they were working yeah. at McDonald's and you were working at the museum or you'd deliver LA weeklies or pizza or whatever the hell you had to do. You would do that because you had to make music. You wanted to keep making music. Yeah. And I think that's a process of elimination of when you figure out what can you do in this world to exist. What would you put up with and what would you not put up with? And then... I came from a little factory town in Pennsylvania, and I didn't want to be stuck there. So I wanted to get a royalty check. I wanted payment to come in yeah. where it didn't matter where I was living. Right, right. So you could live wherever you wanted. Right. Yeah, so that, that was kind of the instigation. Right. But, you know, it wasn't only, I mean, it wasn't only that that kind of determined the kind of audience you built. I think the other reason that you've no. been able to last this long is because you had values that... You, you were able to transmit to your audience. Like, there was something about you guys that attracted an audience. I was hoping that you might play a little bit of music just to get some sense of your aesthetic. Yeah. But could, it's well, up to you when you want to do that. It's, I think it's, it's note, it should be noted that if you, if you sign to a label, you have a better chance of notoriety, right. of becoming uh, popular, because you have a a label is going to invest a lot of money in you, and they need to get the return back most of the time, or there's a chance of it anyway. Right. It could go south. And a label casts a wider net. I mean, they specialize in, yeah. in production and distribution. You know, the, the, you know they, they have to do an element of, of marketing and promotion. They right? got the machine behind it. All right. So you cast kind of a wider net, and you attract that initial audience, right, which you were able to do. No, because if, if you do the license method, then it's more blue-collar. Right. Just, oh, because you weren't taking, you weren't, you weren't part of the, the roster that got marketed and, but that well, didn't benefit. They didn't yeah. own as much of. They didn't take as much of a risk. Is that what you're saying? That yeah, they, I think there wasn't so. enough ri yeah, as much risk. There's involved. not enough investment on their part. So right, not as much of an investment. Yeah. So they can't work it as much. So then you were on your own to build your own relationships and, and yeah, and, and and so it's going to depend on the amount of ambition you have. And I had very little ambition. I just. All I knew is what I didn't want to do. Right. I didn't want to be stuck somewhere. I didn't want to rely on anyone else. I wanted to be do something that was independent. I wanted to find out what it was I could do 
to exist in the world and go anywhere I wanted to go. I don't think that you're unusual as a musician. I know a lot of musicians, and a lot of musicians know an awful lot about what they don't want. Yeah. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, like musicians, that seems to be an MO. Does anybody in this room agree? A lot of musicians know what they don't like. They recognize something negative, something that they that they that repels them, and the things that attract them are more intuitive. I think, yeah. which is a funny way to. I mean, that's just an observation. Yeah, yeah. From there, you can assemble what it is or who it is you are. And I have to say, I mean, you did have an aesthetic. You did have like there was a, there was an element of like free form. There was a you know there was an aggressive nature to your music. Yeah, but there was a an improvisational nature. It was, yeah, it was very improvisational. But the improvisation wasn't within the soloing. It was in the song structure. Right, so and change it every night. So a song was always different, but it wasn't like an improvisational solo that did it. Right, and and you know and the instrumentation was like punk rock instrumentation: drums, guitar, bass, vocals. Yeah, right. Yeah. Electric guitars. They were loud most of the time. Then you moved. You started making more acoustic guitar. Well, I think sound. we were just we were hungry to do things we hadn't done before, so we we stumble. Yeah. So, new. what was the journey record to record then? What what like like what I'm trying to hone in on, just so you know, like I am trying to hone in on something. Mm -hmm. It's this idea that you have you were able to forge a line of relationship with your with your audience, like with your fans. They knew what you mean. They mm -hmm. they know what it meant to be a giant sand fan. What it meant to be a fan of Hal Gelbs. Yeah. And like, and that may have come from knowing what you didn't want. Yeah. But it also was there were positive movements too, and like decisions that you made to nose your way towards something good that made that, that made you happy, right? Yeah. But it was uh, we never stopped, or I never stopped long enough to figure out what that was, or right, awesome. or to describe it. <laughs> didn't need to be described. Right, that's right. Yeah, right. Which made the music difficult to describe. Right. So. Which I think is part of what did the job. When when the music isn't particularly easy to describe, it has um it, it takes uh, it has an effect on people that is either attractive or repulsive, right? Yeah. If somebody heard you play, you would exclude a, a portion of the audience, yeah. right? Yeah, now, you didn't do that. <laughs> I didn't mean that in a bad no, way. No, you're only right. But you have to, right? But you have to, right? Yeah. I mean, you. It's what you aim for, and especially now, post major label, major machine thing, yeah. you need to exclude a number of people in order to tell people what you really are. I, but it depends what you want. It depends what you want out of it. Um, and we were into the trip, the road trip, and we weren't into the destination. So if you're into where it'll get you, that's just as viable, just as valid. But that's what you're into. That's what you should focus into. And, and what do you mean? Well, if you want a certain, if you want the success, if you want a substantial amount of money and uh, all the things that come with the ills of success, then that's okay if that's where you're comfortable. You got to. I think you, if you want to stay at doing it for a while, you just got to do it. You have to find out where you're comfortable. I, yeah, but I don't think that that's where the meaning can be. I don't think you can. You're, I think you end up being really top heavy with no foundation when all you're doing it for is financial gain. Well, I think you end up doing less yourself. You tap into other sources that help to carry you there, or that's what you're after. So like if what? It all, well, you know, like those bigger labels and oh. agents and lawyers and management, and if. 
if then things fall below, below a certain number and nobody wants to work with you because they're not making their percentage points, they're right. 10%, 15 and 20%, then you're left to do it on your own. And if you haven't learned how to do it on your own, then you don't do it anymore. And this way, learn how to deal with every aspect of it on your own. And right. then you're not reliant on anyone. And you may only have, like, I've put out maybe 40 records or so. Only 40? Yeah. Yeah. Or so. I think it's bad <laughs> luck to count. But, <laughs> but then, you know, they only sell, like, maybe they sell 25,000 each. So worldwide. It doesn't get any bigger. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I don't think it gets smaller. But now with the tanking CD sales, maybe it does. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know if it applies or not. We don't have to look at that. But you just do it like a, almost like a subscription. There's the cult crowd out there that'll buy it. Yeah. They just want to see what you're up to next. And right. But they don't just want to see what you're up to next. That's what I'm trying to say. Like you did something that you may not value, but you did something that, that made them want to see what you're up to next. Why do they trust you? Well, it's just your choices along the way. You know, you pick these things to, to become the soundtrack of your life and you're stuck with them. You have to... Yeah. They they bring you back to that moment of in your past that a lot of important memories were made or things were happening. So you're kind of it's your flavors you've chosen, and then you're kind of stuck with those choices, right? For better or for worse, but usually it's for better. Yeah, yeah. The worst well, part I, is trying to explain to your friend why you like this band no one's ever heard of. Yeah, and right. they kind of look at you funny. Yeah, well, that's that's what I'm trying to say. I think that that's exactly what you've been able to do. I don't know where our time is, but I want to check time. What is it? Five thirty. Richard. Okay. The reason, the 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 reason that um I I want to check time is because I I I would like you to be able to play music for a reason. Yeah. Too much talking. I mean, the reason I want you. No, it's not too much talking. But I think part of it is that this is what you put in your time doing. Okay. And this is who you are. So do you want to play something on guitar? Yeah. Can I use this one? Yeah. Yeah. Is this on? No. How about that? There we go. Great. Thank you. 
coming increasingly clear like any good sign. I'm gonna invest all the rest of my time putting in a good word for all mankind. My day has got nothing to do with her. Baby, been running out of reserves. That love is a killer and real good filler. Mine comes into play. This is me loving you to the day. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here in the middle of this interview to talk about one of our great sponsors here at the Scavengers Network. If you are a college student and you're finding yourself sometimes dipping in energy throughout the day, perhaps it's time to get yourself a little bit of caffeine and a little bit of superfood all at one time. That's right, I'm going to be talking about Four Sigmatic. Beyond the Portobello, there's an entire kingdom of mushrooms, and many of them have amazing health benefits for immunity, energy, and longevity that have been studied for centuries. And at Four Sigmatic, they believe in the real magic of functional mushrooms like reishi, chaga, cordyceps, lion's manes, uh, and many others, as well as other superfoods and adaptogens like rhodiola, lithro, and shisandra to help us live healthier, more enhanced lives. Four Sigmatic makes drinking mushrooms and superfoods delicious and easy to do with a wide variety of mushroom coffees, mushroom superfood blends, and mushroom elixirs. Uh, They sell tins for at-home use and single-serve packets, which are very convenient to carry and to share. Um, I'm a big fan of Four Sigmatic uh, because they not only offer the mushroom coffee, um, but they have, you know, like that hot cocoa um, and those elixirs and superfen. Uh, superfood blends and uh, matcha. I have matcha tea. I've not tried the matcha tea, but um, I've heard good things. And something that I'm very excited to try, they just uh, launched this during the summertime. They have a lemonade um, that uh, has has a lot of really great reviews on it. Um, So I'm very excited to try that as well. But I really, really dig the Four Sigmatic Hot Cocoa. Um, That is something that I have definitely had many a time at this point. Um, And the best way to enjoy your Four Sigmatic products is to blend them um, with a cup of hot water or your favorite nut milk, or I usually just use uh, normal milk. I use whole milk, but um, simply mixing them into smoothies or shakes is also a really great way to use it. And you can save 10% on your entire order by entering the promo code SCAVTRUFFLE, that's S-C-A-V-T-R-U-F-F-L-E, SCAVTRUFFLE, at checkout. That is Four Sigmatic. And now we're going to pop back over to Hal Gelb. That was a good move. Thanks. This is a 1959 Martin with the original pickup, a D-Armin. They tried making electric guitars for a short spell. And uh, 
<laughs> so um, <clears throat> can, you, can you guys tell what I mean when I say that, that he made choices that attracted some people and didn't attract other people, right? They're like, yeah. maybe, I mean, that should be apparent even to you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had pl people play with me that went on and, and did much better. In fact, my all my drummers. Yeah. My first <laughs> there's the five drummers I've had was uh, first guy I went on to play with Bob Dylan for five years. The second guy is still playing with Jonathan Richmond. The third started a band with my bass player called Calexico. The fourth. Uh, is, became the drummer in the Arcade Fire. Yeah. And the fifth, well, he's still with me, but he's been playing with Isabel Campbell and Mark Lanigan. Yeah, he's got. He's he's trying to get away. Yeah, he's actually. <laughs> so, um, so you 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 made your bed, <laughs> right? And now you got a yeah. lie in it. Yeah. And after 50, it drives you crazy a little bit <laughs> because you start thinking back and form conclusions. What do you mean? Like, well, that's the funny thing. It's like you, you, you wonder, up until now, you, you think anything's possible. And then you get to the point in your life where you're old enough where you, you kind of see what the possibilities are. So it's got its, it's, got its perks. Well, yeah, see, I don't know. I think maybe you're feeling, are you feeling negative these days? Manopause. Yeah, it's manopause. I don't know. <laughs> are you are you are you are you feeling pessimistic or are you optimistic about about not not the business? I don't really care to talk about the business. I want yeah. to talk about your business. Uh, well, the other the thing you haven't we we didn't touch on is having children. All right, because that's the um, you you all are. What? We all are. Children? Were and will have, yeah. more, more than likely, procreate or be part of a species that is. And so when that uh, applies itself unconditionally, uh, you got to make some career choices. And a lot of the women you see, a lot of my friends that made the choice not to have children, and later on that's going to harbor some regret. And then, on the other hand, a lot of them, a lot of us have decided to have kids along the way, and then that harbors its own kind of, not regret so much as uh, you see where things veered off. Because if you're, if you're out there all the time, you can't have a home life and you can't raise kids up. And if you're out there all the time, you're going to get further along, more than likely. Yeah. So, if you do it while you're young enough, then later on you can if you don't wait too long, you can have that family and be a little bit. You mean if you do your road work while you're young enough? Yeah. Right? Yeah. To get out or there. Or you can figure out a way to be a family on the road. Which brings it to my heroes. <laughs> the O'Connells. <laughs> uh, they they are they're at the top of my list of uh, people that go out there and raise four kids up and take them out on the road, homeschool them, and the kids are fantastic human beings, and the music is as um, spine-tingling as it's ever been, and, and it's just, you know, you Very can, nice of you, but, but yeah. this is not about us. 
Um, but that's why I'm here. Well, yeah. I'm here because of how much I admire how you've lived your life with your family and raised them and everything. Well, I think you're touching on something that's really important to them, even at, at their at their early at this early juncture in their careers, right? You've got to start to think about, you're really trying to make a career of this, right? You want to make a career of it, which means you will do this into your 30s, you hope. You hope you're doing it into your 40s and into your 50s. So what's your strategy for having a life and yeah, a family? But, but don't talk yourself out of anything either, because, I mean, there's... Right. right. You don't know until later, but... John Parrish is... is uh, John Parrish, Billy, and myself are the three. We're in our. We have a men's group. It's an un. It's an unwritten uh, charter. Charter. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, John Parrish, who you might know, works. Uh, he he found P.J. Harvey when she was eighteen and can, has continued to work with her over the years. And he's a he's a producer, but he's also raising kids. He doesn't know. Yeah. Nobody has any uh, uh, security. Yeah. Uh, you know what do you know. call it? Security. Yeah. Security. Yeah. John will be on Conan O'Brien tonight with PJ Harvey in case you get oh, yeah. cable. Right? If you have cable here, you can see our other friend. Um, all right, so let's 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 remember what we're talking about. Yeah, because I forgot. No, me too. But I, I think well, I think that the point that I was I was I was nudging towards with you guys there is that is that you are trying to do this as a career. Does that represent a conflict for any of you guys? Like, what do you th what what are you thinking about? What are you thinking about? I saw you nod vigorously. Is there a mic? Can you pass the mic up? So you, I know you, you. I know you're serious in your music, right? And you want to do it for a long time. What's your plan? I mean, do, or do you think about it? Oh yeah, I think about my plan every single day, and you know how I'm going to balance it, how I'm going to have an income, and you know, be able to do some of the things that I want to do outside of music, like have a family someday and all that. But the fact that I can't ever give up, I don't have a choice. Like I literally can't to give up the music. So you know. You gotta figure it out. So in that case, you you do need a plan. Yeah, right. A lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yet, I that's it, it. It does get to that point where what you said is really relevant. Like you don't want to talk yourself out of anything. You don't want to think there's a rule about being in music or having kids, because you know, you know, you can manage it. And and maybe you do have to make hay while the sun shines. You know, do do a lot of your road work and achieve a certain level, and then realize you're gonna sort of have to fall back from that a little bit if you give up the road work, or maybe you can pick your spots and, yeah. and travel away, right? Which is what I think you've been doing, right? Well, that, when the first record was licensed, it was in France, and the second one was licensed in England. And then when my children, my first child came two years later, uh, which uh, are the ramifications from dating at the office, what do you mean? What? Well, no, I don't if you even date know at the office. Yeah. Work will never be the same again. Right. If, if it works out good, it'll never be the same. If it works out bad, it'll never be the same. Right. So you met your wife. She played bass. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and uh, she was in she was in the Go Go's right before they broke up. She was hired in as Kathy Valentine moved over to guitar, and then uh, she went on to. Uh, Worked with Belinda Carlisle's first record, wrote her first hit single, Mad About You. And then there was a big, nasty record company that came to her and said, uh, we'll give you a record contract. If And she was pregnant at the time. She said, if you don't have the baby. Right? So just like you read about, that satanic endeavor. Yeah. Um, 
which of course our, our baby's 23 years old now and living in Los Angeles. She wants to go out on the road with yeah. a band and yeah. start her own band. So I helped her tour manage last year. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, uh, and but what that did for me was I couldn't I couldn't tour everywhere all the time then. So at that time we saw how good it was in Europe. Here you had to buy your own dinner on the road and at Denny's or if you were lucky and sneak the whole band into Motel 6 and sleep on the floor and all that. You know how it is here. It's the same way in England. But in the rest of Europe, uh, <laughs> there's a standard there that was shocking. Respect for artists and, and support for the arts. Well, that the thing that when people put down socialism and things like that, the upside to socialistic uh, involvement is that the government gives money to the arts. So they have their sound man get 20 bucks an hour. They, they're like capitalistic, but at a higher level. Yeah. And the sound systems are pristine, and, and the theaters are, for the most part, cool, and, and uh, everybody gets their own bed, and the meals were great, and the writer, backstage writer, everything was way better. So when I had to choose a territory, I was choosing mostly Europe. And I didn't give much thought to the fact that They'll never understand what I'm singing about, yeah. especially when the words, when the songs got very wordy. And when they did, then, I'm, then I, I didn't realize that I was probably only attracting uh, intelligentsia, you know, those that can handle a second or third or fourth language and know all the slang and the, the words. Appreciate it for what it was, yeah. Anyhow, all the way up here in the future, it played out okay because the euro got more popular than the dollar, and but the the drag is the commute. Because now that I'm older, I don't like to get on the plane so much. And I have to do it every five or six weeks. Well, and that's a funny thing about you also. I was gonna, I wanted to hit on that. I didn't know how to hit on it. The fact that you're an expert traveler. That became part of your skill set. Yeah. Was well, being an expert traveler. Yeah, it was just like George Clooney in Up in the Air. If you had Jeff Bridges from Crazy Heart. <laughs> Be, in his be place. George Clooney yeah, in his place. Yeah. 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 That's what it was like. That so, is what it was like. Yeah. I mean, I was with you this summer and you were getting the flight home from London, but you had a game, like you had a whole roadmap for success on the, on the trip home. Yeah. I don't know if you remember, but it's, it just becomes a hobby. It's yeah. One of the hobbies you can have on the road is gaming the travel system. Yeah. yeah. So miles, you know, he has to think about miles and, and how comfortable the trip can be. Like, can he, get bumped into business class because yeah. he gets knocked off of another trip or something. Yeah. It's a nutty thing, yeah. but like you, you chose to focus on that. I don't. I don't focus on that. I, I just focus on being miserable for, I, the, for the trip. Well, I gave up poker. That's my poker now. Yeah. Yeah. Playing it out. So, all right. So, so your livelihood is still largely earned in Europe. Yeah. You married a Danish woman. And second wife, yeah. So you have, uh, you live part-time in Europe. Yeah. In Denmark? Yes. My last three bands were uh, Canadian with a gospel choir a few years ago, yeah. which was really cool. Uh, non, they were non-religious songs. But I had this beautiful Baptist gospel choir back Really in the beautiful record. Yeah. And they were just, they, it was stunning just to be out on the road with them, let alone make the record. But they were all Canadian. And then uh, my band that used to be from Arizona is all Danish now um, and 
my new band, when I'm playing solo, are from Spain, Cordoba. They're flamenco, gypsies, real gypsies. And, uh, and I can continuously get labeled as Americana. When it's, yeah, it's like mainly world music. Yeah, people call him an Americana artist. I mean, genre-wise, it gets called Americana. And, but, it's, but I think it's because of the overriding style that you bring whatever the hell you're doing. If you're, yeah. if you're playing with gypsies, you sound like you playing with gypsies. And if you're playing with, a, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and that's, a, you're, the, you're more than just a red thread that runs through that stuff. You're pretty, pretty distinctive. How about, um, can you play some piano? Yeah, good. Can I take I, this I'll off? I'll tell you a story while he's, how do you take it off? Okay. I don't know. No, I will take it off. Hang on. I'll just, is this, your, this is your grandpa's lamp? It's, it's her grandpa's lamp. Okay. It'll be okay. So I'll tell you a funny story. How came and played on a record. How and Andrew Bird played on a record for, for, for my wife, for, uh, for Kristen, a couple of um, years ago. How played piano. Uh, we limited him to piano. And, and Andrew played uh, violin, of course. And uh, first thing How does is come into our, our recording studio and uh, go to the kitchenette and take the boxes, the tray of silverware, and he walks over to the piano, he opens the piano, he dumps the silverware in the piano. And so I think there's an object in there. Yeah, there you go. Sounds great. There's a certain... Yeah. Go ahead. You can use a capo. And then it makes the piano more three-dimensional. I don't know if there'll yeah, be any lyrics in this one. So I guess we only have about 10 minutes left. 
So it's kind of time to start to questions? draw conclusions oh, okay. and maybe 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 ask some questions. So one of the one of the conclusions that I'm I'm realizing that I'm drawing is that if I was a kid in a program like this, I'd I'd be I'd be interested in the fact that um, somebody as weird as you yeah. could make money yeah. and stay in this yeah. by being as you as you can possibly be, not by trying to sound like something else, but by being by 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 sort of exaggerating your fingerprint. Mm -hmm. Would you would you talk about that? Well, I think if you if you find where you're comfortable at, then you'll end up doing it a long time, and things will line up. There'll be tough times, and you know it's not it's not easy. But I think that. The best music is derivative of uneasy times. Um, I think blues and jazz and country, these genres were all, um, they were all formed out of uneasy times. And, uh, and because it is so tough to be a musician, or whatever it is we are, uh, in the States, where there is no support from the arts for the most part, and you have to play funky little places and stay on the road is hard and all that. that you get a backbone and a tougher skin, and then the music is just worth more and more to you because it keeps you afloat. When, when, it's, when it gets so hard, it does something to you. And then you, you plug into it so that it has, it has a iridescence. It has illumination. Um, magic. There's actual magic in there. So... You know, it's an anti-gravity device. And if you can tap into that buoyancy for a little bit, um, I think you can be satisfied. But how you do it is uh, it's just as creative as how you assemble a song or how you package a CD. Right. So, um, and, yeah. I mean, at some point, you're kind of self-selecting, right? I mean, there's this sort of natural selection. People who who don't develop the thick skin, who don't put in the hours, who don't have to do it, stop. And they're not there anymore at that point. And it's not that there becomes, it doesn't, it's not that the competition thins out, it's just that the people who stay become more distinct. Yeah. Or more distinctive, maybe I should say. And, yeah. and, in that, and at that time, maybe your value proposition is just a little bit more crystalline. Maybe it's like it's been articulated a little bit harder and you become something easier to identify. Does that make sense? Not easier to classify, yeah. but easier to identify. Probably. <laughs> um, and but when I, some kid comes up to me and they hand me a tape and they're drunk and they're handing me a CD and, <clears throat> you know, I find myself doing what was done for me. And it gets harder to do that when we get older because we just don't have the time so much to, we only have so much time left. But uh, Matt Ward did that to me. And, All right. And so I helped him with his first record. Yeah, you guys know M. Ward? And uh, a band called Granddaddy did that yeah. back in the 90s. Um, yeah. So you just, you kind of, what you do, you end up doing, or what has been done to you, you end up doing, etc. 
I think there's just a lot to be said for making it your whole life. Yeah, and keeping it, I think, keeping it natural. And, you know, nature can be surreal. Yeah. Any questions from you guys? Anybody have any questions for uh, John I have Paul? a question. Uh, first off, as someone learning how to interview, the character of this interview has been really enjoyable. The content's great, but the ambiance is really wonderful. <laughs> oh, okay. uh, but my question is... the lamp. Is, <laughs> it is the lamp. It's the lamp. Uh, especially the one in the piano. Uh, my question is, uh, we have a lot of people in here sort of on the verge. Am I going to... Am I going to sell my music? Am I going to be an artist artist? Am I going to be, uh, or am I going to try my hand at tour managing? Um, or some other, they're coming up with their own pie chart for how much they're going to work as an artist and how much they're going to work as maybe someone else's team member. Um, what are some of the, what are some of the questions people thinking about pursuing their music should ask themselves? You mean how to gut check kind of whether or not it should be about yeah. your music or whether you should be in the service of someone else? Yeah. That's a good question. Uh, I think that uh, I, you just learn about as much as you can, apply it when, as, as often as you can. You have your natural stamp on, on whatever you do. You probably drive your car the way you play guitar. And... Yeah, and that's that's who you are. That's your signature. That's your, and so. You know, there will be call for that. Some people recognize that. I tend to think that when you get into a band, you set up your loft your lofty goals within reach, and then when they're not working out so well, you improvise. And however you improvise, problem solving is improvisation, and that'll carry you through everything if you get comfortable with happenstance and don't let your imagination limit your resources because your imagination, uh, that means you're planning. And man, there's all kind of possibilities out there that are going to come and torpedo your plans. And some of those torpedoes are way better and bigger than your imagination. So if you're ready for it, uh, you'll be better off in the long run. You'll probably stay alive longer with it and, and have more fun too. And it'll excite you. And that excitement if you allow the door open to accidental inclusion, it'll uh, keep you jazzed on any given night and, and how you're doing it every night. I, I think you just, like in that little, in that answer, you, you, you taught two of my classes. Okay. Well. Like, seriously. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's kind of ridiculous. Thanks. Uh, any, anybody else? Anybody else have any questions? Somebody? Yeah. I don't see who that is. Who is uh, it? It's Pat. Oh, uh, hey, Pat. <laughs> uh, we deal with having to distribute our music uh, in a digital age, whereas I think you got to distribute your music in a more organic way. Is there a way to distribute our music that's more organic and more personal instead of having to wade through all of the crap that's on the Internet? Well... I'm not as well versed, maybe as I should be. I think you're more. I think you probably know the answer. The answer is B. <laughs> you no. Wouldn't wouldn't you say that the, maybe the most personal way is that as at your gigs? Oh well, I, but the way I've stayed alive. Yeah, talk about your tour CDs versus your 
yeah, very yeah. quickly, the, the template was I would do one official release every two years because the press can only handle talking about you every two years or, or more. Oh, they yeah. can't talk about you. There's, not, there's too many bands. It's saturated. They can't afford you the space. So they'll only give you a decent blurt uh, or better every two years. So then every year at, in between that, I do an unofficial record of yeah. some sort. You know, with, I'll make up a new band or something with some other people and put it out there. In between that, I'll put out a piano record, just instrumental. And then also in between that, uh, we'll have a tour-only record. So there's roughly like four recordings in a two-year period. So if, you're, so if you're prolific, you know, that's a strategy. But also, just the tour-only record versus the official release, that's mm -hmm. a pretty interesting strategy. Yeah. Tour-only, you take this homemade yeah. CD with some nice organic paper art yeah. sticker on it, and 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 it's, it's an so cheap now to make. So. It costs nothing to make yourself, but you can make it all special, and each one is handmade and new yeah. and, and, and one of a kind. And better if it's not in a jewel case. Yeah. jewel cases were never good. So, uh, and then you can take more with you, and then people want a souvenir if they enjoy the show. Really. And you so, get a, a much larger whack of the money at that Well, that becomes tour support at the very least. That's right. It's your own so, tour support. We've, we've talked about this for a really long time. That's exactly right. So. And now, now with the advent of, of YouTube and Internet and you can band camp, things like that, where they come, we, our last, we put out a record of pay what you want, and that's just so rewarding yeah. for downloads and things like that because it really makes the most sense. And it's, it's funny how, how the transactions don't add up to like the 99 cents per. No. When, when, you're, when you're an artist like Hal or, or like Kristen, the, uh, the, you know, the average transaction is for much more than iTunes says it is. Yeah, it's weird. It's... iTunes says it's 99 cents for a song, but when people give you what they want to give you, I think you'll find once you have your constituency, yeah. it's, it's... it's a great deal more than that per transaction. Sometimes they're high. Yeah. And they pay 20 bucks for something that should have only been four or five bucks. Yeah. And it's like, oh. <laughs> Is there another question? Did that answer you, Pat? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. All right. Anybody else? How, how about playing a, another piece of music on whatever instrument you want before we go? Really? No, you don't have to. I don't, um, okay. Yeah? Yeah. You want to do happenstance? Happenstance? Oh, you said happenstance. I know that was recorded here too. Yeah, that's why I'm saying we record. You know, we only succumb to two large label endeavors, and each one went horribly wrong. But not horribly wrong. It just the records never came out. But I got the rights to them back, which was nice. Yeah. But one was done here at Lenoir's studio in '94, three or four. But I. Some songs, when I, we record them, we, I make them up right when we're doing them, so I never learn the songs. And then, that's one of them. Yeah, that's one. <laughs> so I can't remember that one. But uh, Europes? Europes? Europes was done there, but that's not that great. All right. It was, it was do what you want to do. You're going <laughs> to. I wonder if this will <coughs> get louder. I think it'll be good. All right. Let's see what this... Yeah, invisible there. system can handle.
gonna do shiver, but I can't. Yeah. Look at it. Q&A is brought to you by Four Sigmatic and, of course, Loyola University, New Orleans. This show is also a part of the Scavengers Network with many other podcasts such as Historical Hotties, Academy Outcasts, and Myth Takes. So thank you so much for joining us here on EQ&A. From Loyola University, New Orleans, this is Colin Parker, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>